Okay, so we're going to look at three topics this morning. We're going to talk about locked doors. We're going to talk about wind. We're going to talk about sunken ships. To start off, I want to tell you about the worst Christmas I ever had. I was probably 10 years old, and my best friend at the time, he had a Nintendo 64, and it was the coolest thing that had ever existed. We played Mario Kart and Zelda Ocarina of Time, and I remember I just like, I, I think that was when I truly became a Christian. That's when I really started praying. Uh, and I was just like, and I asked my dad, I was like, Dad, I, I will forego all Christmases, uh, college education, whatever it is, just to have an N64 for this Christmas. And uh, I would leave, leave post-it notes on the fridge. I would tell my dad like every day. And uh, I remember finally like Christmas morning came and I like got up and I had like just like the absolute unshakable faith that a 10 year old can have. It's like, I'm getting an N64. And I remember like opening each gift, like not even concerned as I like the pile dwindled. And I finally got to the, the last gift and there it was. And I was like, there it is. Like there's my Nintendo 64. And I like picked it up and I remember it was like an interesting shape. Like it, it started like this and kind of like rounded and then like moved in and then rounded again and then like narrowed. And I was like, it's okay, my dad's probably pulling a joke. And I like unwrapped it and it was like a leather guitar case. And I looked at my dad, I was like, you can't fool me. I know when I flip these latches, I'll have an N64. And I like popped one latch after the next. And my dad just had this like excited look, like he was so happy. And I just had this cool, calm confidence. I popped the last latch and then I like flipped open the case and like there was a guitar. <laughs> and I like looked, I remember I like looked at him and my dad was just like, Yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I, like, I was like, maybe it's a like, surface guitar. And I lift the guitar up, and there's an N64. And I like, grab the guitar, and like, it all came out of it. I remember when I was like, does my faith take me to the point where I like, smashed the guitar, and inside <laughs> is the N64? And I like, finally picked it up and looked at it. And I looked up at my dad, and my dad was like, I got you a guitar! And I like just had tears like forming on the edge of my eyes and I was like I don't want to cry because my dad is so happy but this is the worst gift you could have ever given me <laughs> and I, there's like a picture I wish I had found it of me just like holding this guitar like just absolutely like a puppy that's been kicked you know just like <laughs> just like what what do I do with this I'm ready for the rest of the day my dad like played the guitar like trying to show me how awesome it was and I just like watched my dad play my Christmas present for the rest of the day, like trying to show me how awesome a gift it was. I was like, I don't, I don't understand it. And that's like exactly where the text picks up on John chapter 20. If you want to go to John chapter 20, verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. With that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So I want to talk about locked doors. When my roommate and I graduated from college, we moved into uh, this place. Uh, It was over on Crestridge off Woodmont. And uh, we worked third shift at UPS, and oftentimes we would get home, and it was partly because we were poor and we were broke, and we didn't have anything worth stealing in the house, and we were also so exhausted. But we just got in this habit of not locking our door. We would just come in, like kick off our boots, close the door, and we'd both just like collapse. 
Uh, and this went on for like several months of just like no locked doors. This is how we felt. And then I remember we had this like one night where I remember like waking up and someone was like in our kitchen and it was someone that wasn't supposed to be in our kitchen. And there was this moment where like, I looked at Ben and I said, we should probably start locking our door. <laughs> you know, it's like after the like police were called and after everything was settled, I was like, we should probably lock the doors. And I was reading this passage last night and I read commentaries and they said like the locked door proved that like Jesus was both like physical, but he was also like something beyond our grasp that he like appeared in this locked room. I think that's part of it. But I think there's also that sense that things were not okay in the world for the apostles at this time, that they didn't feel safe. They didn't feel secure. Singing that we all resonate with that point. Like we all live in a world right now where we feel very unsafe. Like we live in a world where we're not sure how things are going to turn out. We're not sure like what's going to happen when we turn on the news. What's going to happen when we like answer our phones? I mean, we all live in this situation where we don't feel exactly safe. Like even our phones have passcodes on them. You know, like we lock everything we can. We lock to a point that I forget my passcodes for things. I'm trying to log into my email. I'm like, which passcode is this? Which lock did I put on the door? I mean, we live in this time where we, we put locks on things. And I was seeing that Jesus shows up and he says to them, he says, peace. And we talked about the hero's journey and how it parallels with Christ's story. And then this is where it takes this dramatic turn. It goes different from like all these other hero journeys. Because if you watch like any movie, if you see like read any book, there comes this point where like after the hero gets knocked down, he gets beaten up, he gets back up and like vengeance is had, revenge is taken, the bad guy is overthrown. And we've talked about how they were looking for a Messiah that would like overthrow the Roman rule. And Jesus shows up and he doesn't offer revenge. He doesn't like round everybody up. He's like, let's go kill the Romans. He goes, this is the gift I bring you. Forgiveness. This is the gift I bring you. Peace. I bring you peace right now with locked doors. I bring you the thing that right now is not what you want, but is the thing that like you most desperately need. I bring you right now the thing that you're like most afraid of, the gift that you don't want. This to me would be the equivalent of like if you had a girlfriend or a boyfriend and they like cheated on you, you found out about it and they broke up with you and your best friend was like comforting you and he was like, you know what, man, just have peace right now. Just relax. Forgive them. I remember when I was a senior in high school, it was prom night and uh, my dad had got a CD player put in my car. I had a 1980 Jeep Wagoneer wood paneling on the side. It was the coolest vehicle of all time. I loved it. I remember I picked up my prom date and she had this look like, seriously? Uh, and I remember like during prom someone smashed in the window stole the CD player and I had at that point that day collected the last of the Beatles albums like it was my they were my favorite band I remember it was Yellow Submarine and they stole all my CDs and I remember I was uh, like six foot 90 pounds and I remember yelling at a police officer it was very outside of like my character like uh, I, I don't even think I can yell or scream but somehow I found the energy too and I was like what were you doing? Like, you're supposed to guard my car. And the guy was like, did anything happen to it? Like, it looks like a piece of trash. And I was like, that's my car you're talking about. You know, like, uh, but he like stole my CD player, all my CDs. And that would be like the equivalent of my prom night being like, you know what, just have peace right now. Just forgive them. It's like, no, I want to make them pay. I want to steal all their CDs. I want revenge because it feels so good. And in this passage, he just goes, peace, forgiveness. And I was thinking about that. If you have ever tried to forgive anybody, it is impossible. 
if like on your own strength, on your own merit, you're like, I'll forgive somebody. Like, this is what you see when like parents are raising their kids and they're like, forgive your brother. And you're like, I forgive you. But you better sleep with one eye open tonight. <laughs> you know, like, it's not forgiveness. It's like, it's all like, just like, you know, speaking words. And I love that clip just for that one scene where like Luke, like a teenage boy looks at Yoda and goes, it's impossible. You know, he even has like the tone, right? Like, it's impossible. You know, he goes off and like <laughs> cries. <laughs> and then like Yoda, you know, like does it. And Yoda like explains why. And then I love that Luke goes like, I don't, I don't believe it. And Yoda goes, that is why you failed. It's like the most epic slam. Like, it's like, that's what I look for in a teacher that after I like turn in an assignment, they're like, that is why you failed this test. Like, you didn't understand. So like Yoda is like, and so Jesus gives them the impossible task. He says, the people that like crucified me, I want you to forgive them. I want you to learn to extend mercy. I want you to understand to love your enemy. Like the hard teaching of Jesus that we so often overlook, so often avoid. And I was thinking too, like it, in many commentaries it mentions like why Jesus showed his scars. So like they knew it was Jesus. And I think that's part of it. And I also thought, going with this passage, there's something deeper than that. I think Jesus was showing his scars because he was showing if anyone had a reason to not forgive, if anyone had a reason to not broker peace, it was Jesus. He has complete validation. He could be like, look, look at what they did to me. Like so often when somebody wrongs me, I can like just make the list. Like here's all the ways they wronged me. Here's all the ways I want to get back to them. Like I feel, you always feel valid. Like your violence, your hate always feels valid. Like, but look what they did to me. And Jesus goes, look what they did to me. Forgive them. Like he takes away all of our excuses moving forward. And then it says in this passage, he says, and with that, he breathed on them. So I was looking at these words. And so the word in Hebrew is for breath is ruah. And the word for breath in Greek is pneuma. And both of those words say like breath, like wind and spirit. Just thinking about like the original, the creation story. And you have God taking dust, and then he breathes into it. He takes dirt. That, like the Hebrew is like, from dirt. So you can say like, dirt man, you know? He takes dirt man, and then he just breathes into him. Seeing how like all of us, in some way, we know that we're fragile. Like we know that in some ways like we break, we fall apart. And I remember for me, it came at this point when I was just outside of college and I had up until that point felt like I was just completely immortal and invulnerable like we had won the intramural volleyball championship the year before like I had mad hops when I was in college and then like all gone now but like I could dunk a basketball in college it was like my crowning achievement if I wanted to like show off I'd be like I'll dunk a basketball um, and I remember like coming out of college and then like becoming a youth minister and just getting to like annihilate like teenage boys in sports. Like I was like, look how great I am. I can beat all these high schoolers in video games and non-competitive sports. Like, and um, I remember one time at like church camp, we're playing basketball uh, and this like 16 year old went for a layup and I just like blasted it. Like just went airborne and just like spiked it. And then as I came down, like my foot hit and like my ankle slid out on the dust and my knee just like and I remember like falling to the ground and thinking like, this is not something I'm just going to walk off. <laughs> like I remember feeling my knee and I think it immediately went to watermelon size. Like it just like all the fluid in my body just went straight to it. And I just remember feeling it and I like, and it was that moment where I just screamed 
like at the highest pitch possible. And I remember going to the doctor a week later and it's like, okay, so like what were we talking about? Like two weeks, like in a, you know, like a brace and then I'm done. And he was like, you tore your ACL, like damaged the cartilage and we're going to have to have like complete surgery. So the question now is, do you want us to use like a cadaver or part of your hamstring to fix you? And I was like, hold on, what now? (laughs) You want to do what to what? And I'm like sitting, like sitting in surgery is like, they're like shaving my leg and I'm just like, this can't be happening. And I remember like months after the doctor finally cleared me to run and I felt so happy and I was like, and I finally came back. It was probably like the six month checkup and I, he said, how do you feel? I was like, I feel good, you know? I'm like 90, 95% of where I used to be. I can't dunk a basketball right now, uh, but I'm like 90, 95. Um, when will I be at 100? And he looked at me and this is the most devastating thing I've ever heard. He goes, you'll never be back at 100%. I was like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, like, this is your body now. Like, he was like, it's starting to fall apart. So like, you're the worst doctor. <laughs> it's just like, but so like, there's a sense that we're like, we go through this phase of kind of like disillusionment where we think like we last forever. We're, we're invulnerable. But then like we, some, we either experience something or have something. And we realize like, we're dust. Like, the Bible talks about like from dust we come and from dust we'll return. Like we grow old, like, our bodies fall apart. Our doctors make fun of us for it. Like, but then there's also this weird like, paradox we get, like this like, intersection where we realize like, while we are dust, while we are fragile, there's also something just like immortal about us. Like there's something breathed into us. There's some life breathed into us. Think about that idea of breath. Remember when my daughter was born, no one sat me down and told me about the birthing process. Like no one prepared me. And I remember when my daughter came out, her head was just weird looking. Like, I didn't know this, like, that it was normal, but she had, like, the worst cone head. And I thought, like, something was seriously going to be wrong. And I was just like, I'll love her anyway. Like, I'll just, I'll, and then one of the nurses was like, we'll just put a hat on. And I was like, that's a temporary fix. Like, but I remember, like, they, when the doctors got her out, there's this moment where, like, it's so interesting because everyone is holding their breath as they're waiting for this little person to take their breath. We're all just like waiting. And then all of a sudden the baby's like, ah! I can't wait to hear that on the podcast. Like, but there's the sound and it's like the most hideous, horrible, beautiful sound you've ever heard, you know? Cause you're like, that sound is not musical, but it is life and it's beautiful. And there's a moment where, I, where they take a breath. And then the last thing you do when you die is you breathe. You say like you took your final breath. And we have this understanding like, there's something divine about us. One of my favorite authors, he says it's like we have this immortal diamond inside of us. It's like we have this chunk of God. And this is what God says. God says, I'm asking you to do the impossible. I'm asking you to forgive people. We looked at this earlier with the Lord's Prayer. It's the only thing we own up to on our, our end. We ask God to give us our bread, to give us our daily needs. And then we say, and we will forgive the way you forgive. That's the only thing we own up to is forgiveness. And so God's like, I'm asking you to do something impossible, but I will be with you. I'll give you a part of me. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. I will breathe new life into you. You will have this chunk of God in you. Which kind of takes me to this like last idea. And I think it's because it's, it's probably my, my favorite person in the whole Bible. And it's this section in verse 24. It says, Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. 
So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, through the, though the doors were locked. And Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Put your finger here. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the living Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life the same. I love, I think Thomas is probably like my favorite person in the Bible because I really resonate with Thomas. When other people are like really quick to believe something, I'm the cynic in the corner, like waiting for the proof, waiting for the evidence. I I just doubt the like necessary goodness of like all things. Um, I'm so thankful for my wife because she's like the opposite of all the things that I am. So she helps me be more positive and look for more beautiful, sacred things. And so I just love Thomas. And we just all hate on Thomas. Um, We're all like doubting Thomas. That's what he goes down in history as. But there's a couple of cool things I noticed when I was looking at this. And I love that Thomas, A, he had to wait an entire week. So they all find out about it, tell Thomas. And Thomas goes, until I can see for myself. And then he has to wait a week. So they all get a week of just talking about, like, how cool was it when Jesus just popped up in the middle of the room? And Thomas is like, shut up. (laughs) I'm tired, Peter. I'm tired of it. So tired of it. And then a week later, Jesus shows up. And I love, like, Jesus shows what it looks like to occupy a space of forgiveness. Because he doesn't doesn't rail Thomas. He doesn't chew him out. He just is like, here you go. This is what you said you needed. Here you go. I was talking to Patrick this week, and he said, maturity yields. Like, God moves first, always on our behalf. Like, he doesn't make Thomas apologize. He doesn't say, like, you have to do this first. He's like, here, go ahead. Like, I'll allow you to to feel this spot. I'll allow you to see this good thing. And uh, I was thinking about, like, my personal life, how often we, like, need hard evidence, like, hard proof. So when I was, uh, it's about, like, 13 years old, my dad got, like, season tickets for the National Predators. And we were like the nosebleed section all the way to the top. And this is just one of those really weird nights because like if you're in the top section, you can go down to the glass while they're warming up and watch them like take slap shots and stuff. And I would do that every time because I, I wanted to be a professional hockey player when I grew up. So I'd like be right on the glass watching them. And uh, this night, for some reason, I, had, I decided not to. I decided I just wanted to hang out with my dad. So we're just like sitting up there eating like foot-long chili cheese dogs and talking and uh, this lady comes by and she looks at me and she goes, is it just you and your son? My dad says, yeah. She said, okay, would you like to sit on the glass tonight? And uh, I remember like looking at my dad and like looking back at her, like, is this for real? And I remember my dad, like completely uncharacteristic of him. He looks at her and he's like, don't joke about this. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, don't, he's like, don't play. Um, I don't think he said that, but I wish he had. But I, the lady was like, I want to see what I can do. And she leaves. And I was like, Dad, do you think this is going to happen? Like, is this going to happen? Like, is this, what do you think? Like, what's going to happen? But I was like, just calm down. Like, Probably not. Don't get your hopes up. That's where I get it from. That's where my cynicism all comes from. That one, that was the moment. I now know. And my dad was like, just let's stay calm. So they dropped the puck. The first period's five minutes underway. And I'm watching the game. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, what if we were down there? What if we were down there on the glass? And now look over and like by the entrance to our section, there's like a camera crew 
and there's like the the lady and she has a microphone and i'm like dad like dad look she's here like our our woman is back (laughs) and uh she like and then like it was like commercial break and she walked over and, and she was like okay we're here with and she like hands the mic to my dad and my dad is stunned he does he doesn't have any words and i like leaned over and i was like Trent and Tristan Wheeler. (laughs) And uh, my dad's still just like, and uh, she's like, and we're going to take them from up here and move them down to the glass. And I like had to like lift my dad up. He was just like in shock the rest of the night. I I remember like sitting on the the glass and we were right next to the the penalty box. And in the second period, like they switched sides. And my favorite player was on the opposing team. He like destroyed one of the Preds players. He's like six eight. He just and he got put in the penalty box for cross checking. And I'm just like eight inches away from my favorite player, who's like all the things I will never be. Like he's two feet taller than I am at the time. And I like looked over at him, wide eyed, and he looked at me. He's like, "Hey, what's up, kid?" He's like, "Oh my god." <laughs> and then I, uh, I like he was like, "You play hockey?" And I just nodded my head. And then uh, he's like, well, I got to get back out there. Like, good talking to you. And he, like, got back on the ice. I turned my dad, and I was like, I just talked to Chris Pronger. <laughs> my dad was like, I don't think you said a single word to him. <laughs> but it was just moments, like, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It was so incredible. But, like, I, I, until it was happening, I couldn't believe it. And you have Thomas right here. Thomas saying, like, until I have hard proof, until I can, like, touch the scars and see the points, like, I'm out. And then Jesus shows up without the condemnation. He goes, here you go. Okay, like I understand this is, I'll meet you where you need to be. And then I like the ambiguity of the text. Like it doesn't say whether or not Thomas does. It's like open-ended. I guess you could say like, maybe he did, but maybe he didn't. And so it's way, and Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And this is what's really cool because Thomas is the last person in the book to get it. So some people think that like John ends at John chapter 20 and 21 was added a little bit later. So we're like at the very end of John's story. And this is like the arc that John has been moving towards. And at the very end, the last person to get it, Thomas, he's the last person to get it. And he's the first to understand it. Because I was studying this and out of everyone, Thomas is the first person to claim that Jesus is God. So he says, my Lord and my God. The apostles were like, my rabbi, my Lord, but Thomas claims what John has been working towards the whole time. So Thomas is this guy who doubts, who drags his feet, and that at the end, here he is, and he's like, my God. And he recognizes, like, right here in this space, in the ordinary, the mundane, and the locked room. It reminds me of my favorite story in the Old Testament. It's when Jacob falls asleep, he has a dream about the ladder, and he wakes up, and he has this beautiful line. He goes, Surely God was here, and I did not know it. And he names a place Bethel, house of God. It's like, because God was in this place, and I did not know it. And it's so easy throughout all of our, our time spent on this earth to just miss the presence of God right here in this place. Because so often we have these moments where we, we wake up, we rise, and we go, God was here, and I wasn't paying attention. God was here, and I did not know it. But the whole earth is full of the glory of God. And I want to show you this last picture because I think to me this is like ultimately what it is. Because a sunken ship is something that is completely surrounded by water. And it is also something that is completely full of this water. And I think to be a Christian this is exactly what it is. We are surrounded by the presence of God. 
people are always asking, like, where was God? I think a better question is, where isn't God? Where isn't God? Because we are surrounded by the presence of God. One of my favorite preachers, Barbara Brown Taylor, every time she gets up to preach, she kicks her shoes off. And she thinks to herself, the ground I'm standing on is holy ground. This is holy ground. We sing this song, this is holy ground. When you're in the supermarket, it's holy ground. When you're in your classroom, it's holy ground. When you're in your bedroom, it's holy ground. There's this idea that you cannot escape the presence of God. This is why I think Psalm 139 resonates with us so often, because we all feel in some way this idea that we could get away from God or that we want to get away from God. And yet the psalmist says, like, every time I try to run, everywhere I try to go, you're there. I run. I go to the depths. I go to the heights. I go as far as I can get. And you're there. You're still there. But not only is God, like, around us, surrounding us, but what Jesus says in this passage is, like, God is in you. You have God. Like, the sunken ship is also full of the water that surrounds it. You are full of this presence of God, the Holy is that inside you. And what Thomas shows as an example to us is to recognize that God is here. By recognizing that God is here, then you can also see that, that God is over there. You can, that's when you can start extending forgiveness because you don't have to all of a sudden decide like who is in or who is out, who is worthy of forgiveness and who isn't. You get to start seeing like if God is here, if God is with me, then he's also like over here. He's also over there. And I can start searching and finding God every single place I go. I wanted to end with this quote. Like I, I showed a clip from Doctor Who last week, but there's just this scene that I really like. And as it comes to the end of John, this is what I think of. There's a scene in Doctor Who where the doctor discovers he's a time traveler, so he's allowed to do these kind of things. But he, he finds one of his, his enemies, but his enemy is a child at this point. And his, his enemy is in a trap. And the doctor now has this really interesting conundrum of to save an innocent child and let him grow up to be the evil person that he is, or to let the innocent child die and like prevent this horrible thing. And so you're kind of watching and wondering, like, what do you do in this scenario? And I love it because at the beginning of the episode, the doctor like runs off and leaves the kid. Like the kid's standing in like the smoke and he's just like calling for help. He's like, is anybody there? Hello, is anybody there? And then at the end of the episode, he decides to come back for this little boy and he saves him. And the little boy asks this really beautiful question. He goes, are you my friend or are you my enemy? And he looks at him and you're thinking, yeah, which are you right now? And the doctor looks at him and goes, friends, enemies, I don't think any of that matters. So long as there's mercy, always mercy. So that is what I, I pray over you today is the mercy of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, that we might look at ourselves and see the Holy Spirit indwelling in us, and we might look outward and see the Holy Spirit dwelling in everyone else. May you have a wonderful week. Uh, one quick thing before you go. Uh, on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. we do something called Zao. That is at the well uh, right near Ellipsum's campus there on Grand Life. 8 p.m. It's a wonderful.